Hey, everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Hey, good morning, New Spring. How are you doing? Doing good. Hey, if, if my parents could get up here and talk to you today about how I was growing up, uh, they would tell you that I try to be a rule follower. Like, I really try to follow the rules, except for when I felt like the system was a little unfair or a little rigged. Um, and there's probably no better example of this than when I was in middle school. Uh, when, at the middle school I went to, I loved the teachers. The teachers were great, but I, I hated the food. All right, the food was not good. Um, and, and because, you, know, you guys remember mystery meat? You know how they would say they had mystery meat? Look, there should be no mystery, okay? Like, if I eat a hamburger, I want to know it's 100% cow, not 50% cow, 50% mystery. Um, you know, because we all know when they say mystery meat, they, it's, it's just code for the fact that it's partially plastic and, and it was never approved by the FDA. Um, and so, like, you know, when I was in school, I just wasn't really big on eating the school lunch. And so I brought my lunch every day. But there is a day I remember that I will, I will never forget as long as I live because of how weird and bizarre it was. Uh, so on this particular day of school, I forgot to bring my lunch, which I brought every day because I just would not eat the school lunch. And so I forgot my lunch, and I'm sitting at the cafeteria table, and I don't have anything to eat, but it doesn't really bother me that much because I eat like a bird anyway. So, like, missing a meal, not a big deal for me. Uh, but the lunch lady finds out that I'm not eating anything, all right? So she, she comes over to my table and she talks to me because she's discovered this, and this is very important to her. And so she, she, you know, she looks at me and she says, Stephen, I noticed you don't have a lunch. And I said, yes, ma'am, that, that, that's, that's right, I don't have a lunch. And she said, you need to get a hot lunch. You, you need to go down to the hot lunch and get a hot lunch. And, and like, you know, I... I I, I just said, hey, you know, thanks for the offer. You know, thanks for offering. You know, that's really nice of you. But I, I'll just eat when I get home in a couple hours. Like, don't worry about it. It's okay. But she would not take no for an answer. I mean, she is the lunch lady. And in her world, everyone without fail must eat lunch. And so she, she looked down at me and she said, young man, I'm not taking no for an answer. You will go get a hot lunch. And at this point, I'm panicking, right? You know, and so I just look up at her and I'm like, hey, you know, I just don't really feel like I, like I need lunch right now. I mean, can we work this out? <laughs> and she responds by taking me down to the principal's office. And so we go down to the principal's office. And on the way, I'm, I kid you not, this happened. Okay, this literally happened. It was a long time ago. This happened. On the way, she grabbed a hot lunch to take with us. Because she thought, if I can't make him eat it in the cafeteria, I can make him eat it in the principal's office. So we go down there, and we get to the principal's office. And I, got, and I have to admit, I knew the principal pretty well. He's a pretty nice guy. I had been in his office a few times. 
and so we get in there and, you know, and he, he asks her, he says, so what did, what did he do? You know, did, did he misbehave? Like, did he say something? Like, you know, what, you know, did he, you know, did he get in trouble? And she, as serious as a heart attack, as serious as a heart attack, she said, he won't eat the lunch. I have a lunch right here. He needs to eat it. And she's holding the lunch. And then she hands the lunch to me. And she said, she's asking me to talk to the principal about it. And she leaves. And so I'm holding this tray of food. And the principal calls me in to where his desk is. And so he and I are sitting at his desk. And the lunch is on my side of his desk. And we're talking about this very serious matter of national security that's going on. <laughs> and so he, first of all, he says, look, I understand. This is kind of weird. Uh, but just out of curiosity, like, why don't you just like, eat the lunch? Why, why do you not want to eat it? And I, I just said, you know, I, I, it's just not really my thing. Like, you know, I am kind of picky. I just don't really want to eat it. And he asked me one more time. He just said, so like, are you sure? Are you sure you don't want to eat the lunch? And I thought about what he said. Like, I actually gave it a fair hearing. And I, I looked down at the tray of food and I looked back up at, it, at him. And I said, sir, I have an idea. Is there any way I can say no to this for religious reasons? I was always trying to talk like an adult, even when I was 12. And after he got done laughing, he said, he said son, son what, what religious reason would you, would you have for not eating this? And I said, I don't really know, but I'm trying to think of one. <laughs> and so, and at that point, the principal realized this was going nowhere. So he let me walk out of his office without eating the cafeteria lunch. And, uh, What's funny is all I accomplished by that was not eating a meal that I probably should have eaten and probably would have been good for me. But in my 12-year-old mind, I had taken on the system and won. <laughs> I mean, I was a real rebel. You know, I walked out of that office feeling like Rocky Balboa, like I had just, you know, taken on the system. And, um, you know, I, I stood up to the powers that be, and I said, I'm not going to do it. Um, now, that story really doesn't have anything to do with anything. Um, but... <laughs> I, I am wondering what happens when you have to stand up to the system and you actually have a legitimate reason for it. You know, what happens if, you have, if, what happens if you're being pressured to do or believe something and you actually do have to stand up for yourself and you actually do have to stick up for yourself because you do have a legitimate reason? What, let's make this more serious. What happens if you have to choose between God's authority and human authority? Uh, for example, maybe you work at a place where you feel pressure to maybe cut a few corners or push the bounds of what's ethical because that's considered normal in the industry and that's how you get ahead. That's how you stay competitive. That's how we do things. And you, you feel like you're the only person in the room who's standing up saying, this is not how we should do business. And you find yourself in that spot over and over and over again. Or maybe you're a college student and you feel a lot of pressure to let go of your faith, not just in the classroom, but out of the classroom. Or maybe you're somebody where you're saying, Stephen, just, just the circle of people that I'm around, I just constantly feel pressure to just let go of what I believe in, and I don't know how to, I don't know how to deal with that. What do you do? Well, today I want to talk to you about a few guys in the Bible uh, named Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this is what you need to know about these guys. These guys were wonderful believers. They were great believers in God who lived through a very, very, very bad time. Uh, you know, they were young men. They were just teenagers at the time, but their country got conquered by a, a, a foreign country. And the reason why is they, they belong to the nation of Israel. And God told the nation of Israel time and time again, if you keep worshiping idols, I'm going to let you go into captivity to Babylon. 
And the problem was they didn't listen. The people didn't listen. So God allowed Babylon, this very wicked, horrible, disgusting empire, God allowed them to take over God's people. And Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't do anything wrong. They didn't do anything to ask for this. And yet they were carted off to Babylon like everybody else. But this is what you need to know. The Babylonian empire was smart. They decided you know, we're not just going like, to hurt everybody. We're going to round up the best and brightest young men from Israel, and we're going to teach them how to be a Babylonian. We're going to teach them Babylonian ways, and then we're going to turn them into diplomats for us to go back to their own culture. And one of the best, as God would have it, some of the best and brightest young men that they rounded up were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this is, this is, where, this is where we get to the title of this message, because Daniel and his friends, when they were being put in chains to go to Babylon, even though they were just teenagers, they were just high schoolers, they, just started, they decided they were going to resist the culture that they were being brought into, not with getting angry, not with stomping their feet, not with raging at the system or fighting it. They were going to resist it by following God. And so they were carted off in chains to Babylon, and they knew that Babylon would try to indoctrinate them. They knew that Babylon would try to change their beliefs. They knew that Babylon would try to threaten them into submission. But they said, we're, we're not, we're not going to be changed by Babylon. We're going to change it. And so they started a resistance. Now, I know whenever I say the resistance right now, that is immediately a Star Wars reference for everybody because they're like, you know, the new Disney movies, the good guys are called the resistance because in the old school, the best Star Wars movies, they were called the rebels. And Disney basically copied everything the old movies did and just tweaked it a little bit. So they were like, hmm, what's a synonym to the word rebels? Resistance, yes. And so they do that. And I, I know that's a Star Wars reference, but I'm not talking about a fictional resistance. I'm talking about a real one. And these guys, they stood up to the system. They said, we're not going to let Babylon change us. We are going to change Babylon. And that's exactly what they did. And I want to talk about how did they start a resistance? Because these guys were incredible. Not only did they have an impact on Babylonian culture, but they turned their enemies into friends and they ended up changing the world. So how did they start the resistance? And I'm gonna tell you their story, but look, look, how, how did they start the resi resistance? I think there's three points to, if you wanna resist the culture you're in and do it effectively, there's three points you need to know. The first point is know your message. You gotta know your message. If, you've, if, you, if you look at history and all the great movements, uh, like the civil rights movement, you look at some of the great movements throughout history, they knew what their message was. They stayed on message. They knew exactly what their message was. And that's what I love about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is they knew what they were about. You know, these guys are only teenagers. And yet when they got carted off to Babylon, every time in the Bible they got challenged, every time they, that they were asked what they believed, they had an answer ready. They knew what they were about. And that lines up with 1 Peter where it says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And as I was getting ready for this message, I just felt God challenging me. I felt God, God challenging me to know if someone were to ask me, what are the basic principles of the Christian faith and can you defend it? I, I felt God challenging me to write down just a logical argument, a logical argument of what are the main things that us as Christians believe and how can we defend those things? Because we need to be prepared to give an answer. You know, we're in a culture where there's a lot of pressure. What is our message? I mean, I know the Christian message is very complex. There's a lot of things to it. But I just want to talk about, on a very basic nutshell level, what our message is. So I'm going to break all the rules of preaching right now. If that's okay with you, 
I'm going to preach a brief message within a message and talk about what is our message as Christians. And there's just a few points I want to walk through. Here's the first point. There is a God. There is a God. You know, over and over again, I talk to skeptics who say, Stephen, how could you believe in a supernatural, all-powerful God when you've never seen him? And that's a good question. I don't just, you know, I don't just throw that question away. I listen to it. It's a good question. Because science is supposed to be the study of the things you can see, hear, touch, study, things you can put under a microscope. I mean, you can't put God under a microscope. You can't put God in a test tube. But let me ask you a question. I mean, have you ever seen gravity? Have you ever touched it? Have you ever felt it? Can you put it under a microscope or in a test tube? No, but you can see the effects of gravity. Therefore, you believe in it. I mean, if the effects of gravity were not visible, America's Funniest Home Videos would lose half of their material. (laughs) You know gravity exists because you see what it does. And because because you see what it does, you know it exists. And God is the same way. Yes, I can't see him. Not today, I can't. Someday I will. Yes, I can't see him. Yes, I can't touch him. Yes, I can't put him under a microscope or in a test tube. But every single day of my life, I see what he does. I see what he does in people's lives. I see how he changes people's lives. I see how he puts marriages back together. I see how he puts families back together. I see how he gets people back on the wrong track when everybody thought they would never come back. I see, I see God work miracles. I've seen what he does. I, I look at nature. I look at everything around us. And I, because what he does is so obvious, because I know what he does, I know that he is. There is a God. There is a God. You know, I, I remember my dad telling me, this is the only service I've, I've, I'm going to tell the story in because I just thought about this. I remember my dad telling me a story, and I think he might have shared this with you too, about how my grandpa, who pastored the same church for 50 years, there was a man in his church who was passing away, and my grandpa got down to the hospital just in time. And uh, when he walked in, the man said, uh, Brother Hoover, I'm, I'm going home. And my grandpa said, sure, sure, yeah, you, you know, you're going to be okay. You're going to come back from this, and you're going to go home, and, and you're going to be all right. And the, and, and the guy said, Brother Hoover, I'm going home. And with that, he passed from this world to the next. There are certain things that cannot be explained that we can't see, but they are so real. And until our culture gets that, we're going to live in darkness. There is a God. He, he's as real as the back of your hand. There is a God. Here's the second point. God created the world. God created the world. Oftentimes when I talk to skeptics, they'll tell me, I find it highly improbable, if not impossible, that a supernatural, all-powerful God created the world. But here's the thing. What I've discovered in my life is sometimes things that you find highly improbable or impossible end up coming true. Uh, You know, uh, when Elle and I got married, a couple weeks into our marriage, Elle had to sit me down and have a talk with me. Uh, she said, Stephen, you sleepwalk. And I said, no, I don't sleepwalk. And she said, well, why do you think you don't sleepwalk? And I said, because I have no memory of ever sleepwalking, (laughs) which that's an oxymoron. And so, you know, she, she, and, and the reason why she had to sit me down is she said, look, I have proof. Last night you got up and walked around and I could tell you were still in your sleep. And not only that, you were pulling the chain on the fan that turns the light on and off. And you were doing it like a maniac. And she said, I had to get you to stop. And, and I said, wow. I said, did I say anything? 
And she said, well, I think your exact words were, honey, 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 honey. And, but I, I still didn't believe her. I thought she was pulling my leg. You know, so I, I, I thought it was highly improbable, if not impossible, that I sleepwalk. But a few days later, I was confronted with an interesting situation. I got out of bed, and I had my morning routine, and I went over to the kitchen to get breakfast, and I was confronted with a crime scene. Because on the floor of the kitchen area of our apartment, there's this giant puddle of tea, and... This is what I know, okay? That floor was clean the night before. I know it for a fact because I was the last person to be in the kitchen the night before. So I know there was nothing on that floor. Nobody broke in. And I realized when I looked at it, someone in the night had opened the refrigerator and grabbed a pitcher of tea and did a pouring motion like they were pouring into a cup. There was no cup. And then they put it back into the fridge, closed the fridge, and walked away. Now, here's, here's what I knew, all right? I knew that that floor was clean the night before. I knew that nobody broke into our apartment and I knew that Elle had not gotten up in the night. And so I was confronted with a situation where even though I thought it was improbable that I sleepwalk and even though I thought it was impossible that I sleepwalk, I was left with a crime scene to where there was no other logical explanation than the fact that I am indeed a sleepwalker. And here's the thing, God has left God has left a spot of tea on the floor, so to speak. Not a spot of tea, but a spot of tea <laughs> on the floor. And the spot of tea is nature. And his, his fingerprints are all over it. And if you walk into that crime scene, and if you actually, from a neutral perspective, look at the evidence on both sides, if you walk into that crime scene and, and look at the evidence on both sides, here's the thing. You will be put into a position where you have no other logical explanation than the fact that a supernatural God created the world. That is the position you'll be in. I mean, just think about DNA for a second. I mean, you know, one of my favorite quotes is from Bill Gates. He said, DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software ever created. I find that interesting because Bill has to hire software programmers and software designers to make software. I mean, and, and software doesn't just evolve into existence. Bill did not put Windows 98 into a PC, let it sit for a long time, and expect it to turn into Windows 10. And yet we are constantly force-fed the idea that the massive complexity of human life just came about by accident. That's like putting a bunch of it's like putting all the parts to a Boeing 737 in a junkyard and, and letting it sit for a long time and expecting it to turn into a plane. For all of you who are in aerospace, you know, ain't going to happen, all right? doesn't matter how many years you let it sit, it isn't going to happen. And that's the thing. If we're going to stand up in our culture today, if we're going to have a resistance, we need to stand up for the fact that God is creator, that he is the creator. Here's the third point. I promise I'll move fast. This is the mini message. This third point in the mini message. The gospel is true. The gospel is true. There's a lot of people today, when, when they're on the outside of the church, when they're on the outside looking in, they're wondering, what is the center of the Christian worldview? What is being a Christian all about? For a lot of people in our culture, they look at us and they say, well, the center of the Christian worldview is politics. And here's the thing. I think that Christians should be active voters. I think that we should vote our conscience. I think we should be involved in politics. For people who say, oh, if you're a Christian, you should rise above politics by not voting. We should appreciate that we live in a country where we have the right to have a say in our elections. So we should be politically involved. But politics is not the center of the Christian worldview. Having a certain political persuasion is not the center of the Christian worldview. 
And then for other people, they look at us and they say, well, the center of the Christian worldview is that you have perfect church attendance and that you dot every I and you cross every T and you never mess up. Now, if that was the center of our worldview, we would all be kicked out overnight because none of us could live up to that. The center of the Christian worldview is the gospel. Everything else revolves around the gospel and the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the message that is the center of what we believe. Everything else revolves around that. And maybe you'd say, well, Stephen, I'm spiritual and I consider myself a Christian, but I don't believe in a literal death, burial, and resurrection. Here's the problem with that. If Jesus did not come in an actual body, and if he did not actually die, and if he did not actually rise from the grave, we are wasting our time today, and we should go home. And the reason I say that is the Bible says that. In 1 Corinthians 15, 14, it says, if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. How's that for honesty, right? Either, he, either Jesus came here or he didn't. Either he died or he didn't. Either he rose from the grave or he didn't. But I've got good news for you. The death, burial, and resurrection is one of the most well-documented, most proven events to ever happen in history. If you're, if you're ever interested in looking at the giant library of evidence, I would highly encourage you to read The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel or to read Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh and Sean McDowell. These are incredible books. I would highly recommend reading them. Here's the fourth point, and I gotta move. There is such a thing as right and wrong. And this is a tough one in the culture we're in because this point is under attack more than the rest of them. Here's what I know. This point naturally follows the last because... If, if Jesus did truly, if he did truly come to our world and he did die on a cross and he did rise from the grave, here's the thing. He had to die for something. You know, every time we wear a cross on our neck or every time we celebrate the cross, we have a cross right outside our church. Every time, you see the, every time we celebrate the cross, not only are we acknowledging that Jesus died, we are acknowledging that there was something he had to die for. He, there was a reason he had to die. And, you know, I remember reading about a pastor who had a dream one night that he was watching a Roman soldier nail the nails into Jesus' hands. And he was so distraught and he was so horrified by it that in his dream, he ran up to the soldier and he screamed and yelled at him, stop it, stop it, stop it. But when the soldier turned and looked at him, it was his face. That is how I feel. I know that I know all the terrible things I've done. I know all the sin that I've done. And so and I know for a fact that my sin is part of the reason why he was on the cross. My sin nailed him to the cross. And so when we try to embrace the Christian message, but turn around and say, well, sin doesn't exist. We're basically looking at Jesus saying, you died for nothing. He didn't die for nothing. There was a reason that he died. And there was a reason why he rose, a gra- rose from the grave three days later. There is such a thing as right and wrong. And here's my favorite. Number five, everyone is offered forgiveness through Christ. Have you noticed that as our culture moves away from God that we become less forgiving and not more forgiving? Have you noticed this shift that's taken place? You know, constantly for the last 20, 30 years, we've had it preached to us that the farther our culture moves away from God, the more inclusive, accepting, and forgiving we get. Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, how else do you explain cancel culture? Where, you know, someone says something wrong or it does something wrong and then it's just like, you know, be gone with you. This person's gonna disappear. You'll never hear or see from them again. What's with that? 
Oh yeah, we've become so forgiving and inclusive the farther away we move from God. Okay, all right. No, 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 no. And you know what? God hates it when people get thrown away for no reason. He hates it. If I could describe it this way, I would, just, I would describe it like this. Do you, do you guys know somebody in your life who just has too much money? You know, every time you talk to this person, there's just part of you that's like, you know what? Tone it down on the money a little bit. You have too much. Like, I don't care if you invested in Tesla at the right time. Just stop making so much money. Um, imagine that person. And then imagine that one day they drive up to your house in a 2021 Lamborghini Huracan. Okay, $250,000 car, just beautiful sports car, all right? They drive up to your house and they say, hey, I thought I'd drive this by so you could take a look at it. So, you know what I mean? You, you just freak out. You're like getting inside, you're checking out the interior, you're checking out those doors that like they don't open regular, they like open up. Because that's how you know you made it in life, when your doors go like this instead of like this. <laughs> Um, and so you're like checking out this car, you know, it's Italian engineering, you know, it's just like you can't get enough of it. They let you start the engine, you start the engine, you listen to it, you look under the hood and you're just freaking out. You're like, I can't believe you got this car. This is amazing. Like, I'm so jealous. Like, can you sell it to me? You know, just like, you know, I, like, I love this car. But what, what would happen if your friend said, you know, I, I did buy this car, but it is a shame that later this afternoon I have to take it to the junkyard. Now you would freak out. I mean, you would say, you're taking this car to the junkyard. This is a $250,000 car. You just bought it from the dealership. Why are you taking it to the junkyard? And they say, well, 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 let let me show you something because there's something about this car that you missed. Here, follow me. Let's go over here. See the scratch on the door? See this scratch on the door? That is a nasty scratch. That is a nasty scratch. It looks like one of Carol Baskin's tigers got their claws out and just... (laughs) Look at that scratch. This car is tainted. This car is beyond repair. This car, I don't understand how I could ever drive this car again because I bought it with such high expectations, but there's a scratch on the door. You would freak out. You would tell your friend, it's a scratch. Take it down to the repair shop. They have it done in like 20 minutes. There's nothing wrong. You can't, why would you do this? And let's just say that you can't reason with your friend and you watch them drive this beautiful sports car down to the junkyard. You watch them drive away. Admit it, you would cry. Especially the men. And it's not even your car. You would cry. Why? Because you would hate to see such a beautiful and valuable thing thrown away for such a minor flaw. That is how God feels when people get thrown away because of their mistakes. That is how God feels when people just get moved off to the junkyard because they happen to make some bad choices and get on a wrong road. And so everybody just throws them away and says, be gone with you. You know, and it's not just cancel culture. It doesn't just happen publicly. This happens privately when families give up on someone and throw them on the, in the trash heap and we say, this person just can never be forgiven. Or we, we have people in our lives that we just throw away. And God is saying, look, 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 you don't understand the value of this person. You don't understand how valuable they are. They're so valuable. I sent my son to die on a cross for this person. This person is not a throwaway. They're extremely valuable. How could you do that? If I have to choose between this cancel culture telling me what to believe and what to think and what to do and the God who offers forgiveness and restoration to everyone who asks, I'm picking God. I'm going with him. We don't live in a forgiving, inclusive culture. They say that, but they don't deliver on it. They never deliver on it. They're all talk. 
God is the one who offers forgiveness. And if we're going to have a resistance today, we're going to have to be the ones to stand up to our culture and say, it's our God that offers forgiveness. It's our God that offers inclusivity. It's our God who offers restoration. And he doesn't just talk about it and start hashtags about it and pretend to care. He cares. He cares. And he restores people. So I got to get back to the main message. And I have no time to do it. So here's the, second, here's the second main point for how to start a resistance, and that is don't conform. I'm going to move really quickly about this. When Daniel and his friends, when they arrived as teenagers to Babylon, they were told, you have to eat, uh, the king's, uh, you have to eat meat from the king's table. Well, there's only pro- one problem with this. That meat's been offered to idols. And according to Jewish law, you know, they actually had a religious reason not to eat the lunch, okay? Um, <laughs> It was actually reading through that story that made me think about what happened when I was in middle school. I was like, well, I, I, you know, I could have done better. Uh, but, uh, you know, they, uh, the, 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 they refused to eat this because they said it goes against our law. And so, uh, you know, they decide not to conform to the standard that they're being asked to conform to. And what's cool is they get creative about it. This is what Daniel said to the guy who was trying to get them to eat this. He said, Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. Now, this is what I find really interesting, is that these guys didn't rage against the system. They didn't get mad. They didn't get angry. They didn't fight about it. They just said, look, we're just not going to conform to this system, and we're going to let the world around us judge whether that was the right choice or the wrong choice. And I think a lot of times with Christians, a lot of times we feel as if, like, we just got to rage against the system. You read social media, it's just like, I'm mad at the system. I'm mad about this. I'm mad about that. It doesn't accomplish anything. The best thing we can do is just to say we're not going to conform to the system and we're just going to let people judge whether we made the right choice or the wrong choice. You know, one of my heroes in life is a guy by the name of Branch Rickey, who was uh, the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers in the 1940s. And one thing you need to know about Branch is that he hated racism, just like God hates racism. And uh, Branch was in a culture, he, he was in a culture where segregation was normal. In the 1940s, it was, it was very, there was a lot of pressure on owners of major league baseball teams not to integrate their teams. But Branch was a believer in God. He had a lot of faith, and he said, it's time for me not to conform to this system. And so he brought on a guy by the name of Jackie Robinson onto his baseball team. And he said, you know what? It's time. It's time for change. It's time for me to stand up to the system. It's time for me to say, this is wrong. We got to change this. You know, there's times... There's times, there's times in your life where you're going to find yourself in a position like that. And what's really interesting is there was a reporter who came to Branch Rickey and he said, don't you know that when Jackie takes the field that all hell will break loose? And Branch quietly said, I believe all heaven will rejoice. And that's what happens when you decide not to conform is you're going to have people tell you, don't you know all hell's going to break loose if you believe this or if you say that. And, but here's the thing. God comes along and says, all heaven will rejoice. You don't have to conform. Here's the 
And here's what I find so cool. I'm going to summarize this, but Daniel and his friends, after that test, after those 10 days of eating vegetables, they were much stronger and in much better shape than all the rest of the guys. And so they won because the world saw they were better off for not conforming than they were for conforming. So here's the last point, and I promise I'll be done. And that is don't bow. Don't bow. I don't know why, but at some point in the book of Daniel, Daniel and his friends get separated. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are by themselves. And so they, they're, they're in a bad situation because the king of the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's decided that he's going to make everybody worship a giant golden statue of him. A little narcissistic. Um, and he asks everyone to worship it. In fact, his messenger says this. He says, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. It was this last sentence that had them a little on edge. And, and this is the thing. Whenever you're intimidated to believe a certain thing or do a certain thing, that's a giveaway that whoever is trying to get you to do it is insecure about their position. You know, I think one of the reasons why our culture has become so pushy about pushing certain beliefs and worldviews on people is it's simply this. Let's, let's do a hypothetical. If you're trying to convince someone of something, you don't have to hold their feet to the fire to believe the truth because the truth is often convincing by itself. You only have to hold someone's feet to the fire to get them to believe a lie because a lie is not able to stand on its own two feet and it requires intimidation to get people to accept it. That is what is going on. And it's not just going on here, it's going on around the world. And here's what I love about Jesus. When Jesus walked the earth and he taught people, he didn't force anybody to accept what he said. He gave people the choice to accept it or reject it because what Jesus said was so true that people accepted it based on the merits of the argument. You know, <laughs> and the reason why Jesus did that is unlike the cultural message, Jesus' message stands on its own two feet and it doesn't need any help. One of the reasons our culture is so pushy is because the message needs a lot of propping up and it needs a lot of force to push it on people because it's not like we would accept it based on the merits. And so King Nebuchadnezzar tries to force everyone to worship this gold statue because he knows, it's, he knows it's ridiculous. And so he has to force people to do it. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm going to summarize this, but they stand up to the system and say, they say we're not going to do it while everybody else bows. And so all these other guys are bowing. They're standing. My dad always says they must have looked really tall in a sea of rear ends. And so, you know, they're standing. And uh, I'm going to summarize this, but they get called into the king's office and the king is raging and saying, I can't believe you would stand while everybody else is bound. You're making me look bad. I don't like this. And, he, and the king once again says, if you don't worship it, I'm going to throw you into the furnace. And the guys were like, well, you got to do what you got to do. Um, and so they get thrown into the blazing furnace. And the king is so mad, he has the furnace heated seven times hotter, which I'm not an engineer, but that sounds bad. It's seven times hotter. The furnace is so hot, it kills the guys who throw them in. So they get thrown into the furnace. But a few minutes later, something incredible happens. It says this, but suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unharmed and the fourth looks like a god. 
You know what happened here? It's called a Christophany. It's an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Only happens a few times. But Jesus appeared in the fire and said, I'm I'm here to help you boys out. And they walked out of that fire unharmed. And not only that, but the guy who threw them in the furnace was so amazed by it, he became a believer in God down the road. This is what we need to understand. This is, this is, this is what we need to understand, guys. Because <laughs> I, I don't have this on videotape. I wish I did, but I wish I could see the moment when Jesus decided to, to visit these guys. Because, you know, Jesus saw it when they were on message. Jesus saw it when these guys would not conform. Jesus saw it when they would not bow. And Jesus saw it when these guys told the most powerful man in the world that he could take his bag of goods somewhere else. And I don't know this for a fact. I'm going to have to ask, but I think Jesus leaned over to an angel and said, look, these guys have been fighting for me for years. I'm going in. I'm going in. And here's the thing, I think you'll see this. If there's times in your life where you have to push against the system, it's amazing how Jesus will come down and push with you. You're not the only person pushing. And maybe you'd say, I'm going to close with this. Thank you for your patience with me. I'm going to close with this. Maybe you'd say, Stephen, but that was back then. Like, do Christians still have that kind of courage today? I was reading a story this week I'd never, ever read before. As you know, in China, the persecution is getting worse by the day, by the hour, by the minute, especially in Hong Kong right now. It's just, it's bad. It's really bad. But I read a story about a house church that got busted. And, you know, they found out that the house church got busted, wait for it, for having church. You know, California got a small taste of that this last year. Um, But the house church got busted and there were, everyone got arrested. And there was a Sunday school where there was 30 kids and they got arrested too. They got herded into a van to take down to the police station. And they brought the kids into the van and the Chinese police said, you know, be quiet. And yet the entire van ride, they were singing songs about God from the house church to the police station. And when they got to the police station, the police said, we will not give you back to your parents unless you write 100 times, I do not believe in Jesus. But the officers were amazed Because instead of writing on the board a hundred times, I do not believe in Jesus, they wrote a hundred times, I believe in Jesus today, I will believe in Jesus tomorrow, I will believe in Jesus forever. That's what they did. And the officers were so astounded that they let them go and they could go back to their parents. But here's the thing, maybe I need to get on a flight to China to go get some courage, you know what I'm saying? Uh, but the resistance is alive and well today. And I'm happy to be a part of it. And I think it's growing by the minute, it's growing by the second, and I'm so happy to be a part of it. Let's pray really quick. Heavenly Father, I pray for this wonderful church. Father, we don't know what times lie ahead. We don't know where the culture is going, but we pray that you would always give us courage. We pray that you would give us wisdom. And we pray that you would guide us and, and help us make the, our decisions to be like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to stand up for you. With every head still bowed and with every eye still closed, I just want to pray. I, I, I want to talk to you really right quick. I want to talk to you right now. If you've never accepted Jesus into your heart, if you've never made that decision, and you said, Stephen, I've heard you talking about God. I've heard you walking us through these different points and it resonates with me. If that's the case and you've never accepted Christ, don't wait. Don't wait for tomorrow. Don't, 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 don't put it on your calendar and say, maybe sometime I'll accept Christ. Do it today. Do it today. Because we don't know how much time we have. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. Do it today. 
And if you want to accept God into your life, I'm going to pray a prayer with you. And these are not magic words. These are just calling out to God saying, yes, I want you in my life. Yes, I want you in my heart. And you can pray this out loud or you can pray it silently in your heart. Let's pray together right now. Heavenly Father, I know that I've done wrong things. I know that I've messed up. But I believe you love me anyway. I believe you sent your son to die on a cross for me. I believe that he paid the penalty for my sin. And I believe that he arose from the grave. Please come into my heart, forgive me, and change me from the inside out. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you just prayed that prayer, we have a gift that we want to give you. There's a box that says, for your new walk with God. It's got a Bible in it, and it's also got some other things we'd like to give you. If you want it, just text PRAYED to 97000. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your weekend. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.